Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Wrong circumstances come together at the right time, so... And uh, it, just, it just went up in a ball of fire. And... 
My daddy used to tell her that there was two miracles that day, that, that I survived the fire, and he told her she had 15 minutes to pack to be gone for 30 days. It took two or three years to get past the fear of fire. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston. And welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place, and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Steve, I got a confession to make. Several (laughs) folks over on Patreon have stepped up to the plate with new and increased support. And I, in turn, had promised to keep my Diet Pepsi intake to just one a day. Okay. Now, what are you confessing? I stumbled a little bit yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And I had three. All right. And I'm talking about the cans, the the 12 ounce cans of Diet Pepsi. Honestly, I've actually been doing pretty well with it and not really even missing it. And I've taken up drinking unsweet tea most of the time with no sweetener, but if it's kind of a harsh tea or whatever, I'll try to taper it a little bit with at least one packet of Splendor or whatever. I can't say that I like it, but it is getting me past my Diet Pepsi addiction. Baby steps, man, baby steps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yesterday I had what would have normally been my one Diet Pepsi a day early in the morning, just as a wake me up. But then I was teaching Sunday school yesterday morning at church. And I, for whatever reason, I had this terrible case of cotton mouth. I put in a video, was going to show a video. And while that was running, I went to the refrigerator and the only thing in there was. Let me guess. (laughs) a diet Pepsi. (laughs) A temptation right there in the fellowship hall at church. (laughs) And you know what? I actually left it in there because I was going to be a man of my word and I was going to leave it in there and not drink it. I don't know what was going on, but I just had a really bad case of cotton mouth. And I went back and I got it just to wet my mouth a little bit. So I'd be able to speak and teach in Sunday school. So I'm going to count that one as medicinal. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But then we had a fall festival last night at church. and. Yeah, Jeannie brought me another one and I drank it. So there I said it. I fell off the bandwagon yesterday and hopefully our new and increased Patreon supporters won't cancel their pledges as a result. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ricky gave into temptation happens to all of us. Now to average it out, okay? You said you had three. All right, well, for the next I'm, I'm not sure I like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make it all even, Rick, you can't have a diet Pepsi for the next three days. How about that? Well, I can't say that I'll do that today because I've already had my diet Pepsi for today. <laughs> and listen, I don't know that I can make it through the day yet, yet without one. So I don't know. Maybe I'll give that a try. I I, I don't know. I'm not no. gonna make any promises on that one. How's that? Well, just do the best you can, Rick. Besides, you kind of look at it positively, okay? We could be talking Budweiser here. <laughs> <laughs> nope, don't want to go there. No way. All right. <laughs> okay, we better move on right quick <laughs> before the both of us get in trouble. <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment, 
Robert Calicut. Now, a lot of race fans are not going to be familiar with his name, but he was living the dream as a race fan. He was working for Richard Petty and he was traveling to all the races. And he tells a story in this week's segment of where he went down to testing at Daytona with Richard just before the 1988 Daytona 500. And Steve Richard took him out on the track at speed in the race car. Oh my gosh. Now that would be the coolest thing in the history of ever. <laughs> I'm not sure Robert was prepared for that. <laughs> I know I wouldn't be. Well, that dream turned into a nightmare in the spring of 1989 in Atlanta. And he was gassing Richard's car when it backfired. And all of a sudden, Robert was engulfed in flames. And he was severely, severely injured. And he actually spent the next 33 days in the Humana Burn Center in Augusta, Georgia. But here's a little bit of trivia for you. You know how I'm big on trivia. My story on Robert Calicut was the very first one that I ever did for Winston Cup scene. Oh, yeah. I didn't remember that. Back in October of 1992. And there's a little bit of a backstory about that, but we'll get into that later. And before we get into the story, I do want to add a little bit of a disclaimer, and it is not. <laughs> it is not about Robert's language. <laughs> <laughs> not in any shape, warm, or fashion. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Phillips, who has been helping out with our sound, he and I drove down to Robert's shop in Ashborough. But while we were on our way, we went through a couple of really bad storms. In fact, while we were on our way to Roberts in Ashboro, there were tornado warnings back home in Yakin County, where I live. Mm -hmm. And by the time we got to Robert's shop, which is not air conditioned. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we had to leave the door up just for some ventilation and a little bit of coolness. We got everything set up and the storm caught up to us. Oh, and you can hear it. You can hear it on the interview big time about five minutes in and it lasts for several minutes and we were in the big metal shop and everything. So the, the sound is okay. It's a, it, it's acceptable. You can definitely hear the ambient atmosphere going on around us. Well, listeners, you have to admire Rick's courage to brave a storm to bring you the best interviews. (laughs) (laughs) The postal service don't have anything on me. (laughs) (laughs) But then, Steve, in our second segment, we're going to go back to the March 23rd, 1989 issue of Grand National Scene. And that issue featured coverage of the Atlanta event in which Robert was injured. The race was won by Daryl Waltrip. After he beat Dale Earnhardt off a of pit road during a late race pit stop, or did yeah, did he? Did he? <laughs> or did he reach the stripe before Dale? And Steve Dick Crickle finished third. Yeah, that was really a good story there. In just his second race right. as the substitute for Mike Alexander at Stavola Brothers Race. And finally, Steve, despite me falling off the bandwagon yesterday with my Diet Pepsi. This week, we do have new Patreon support from Chase Moore. So, Chase, thank you. 
thank you very, very much for joining the family, joining the team. And that's what we consider our supporters. We consider them family and they are definitely part of the team. So if you can support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, you can also support us in a very real way by dropping us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform catches on. Now that's not about getting a pat on the back from me and Steve. People pay attention to those reviews and they encourage other people to listen. The address for Patreon is patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. Well, Robert, first things first, you and I have known each other for a long time and I can tell you exactly when we met, but how did you first get interested in racing? Well, a good friend of mine worked for Richard for Petty Enterprises uh, for years, Wade Thornburg. Okay. And uh, he he was raised not very far down the road from where I was, from where I'm at now. And uh, I used to go up to the shop with, you know, with him and go, just, you know, up there some. And then uh, through business uh Day once uh, we we were renting some equipment to uh, Dick May, which I think's passed away now. Okay, uh, all right. And Dick was uh, he he was in charge of putting up the big balloons for STP and for Winston, I think. And and so he invited me to go to the races with him a little bit, and I just I don't know, just kind of took a liking to it. So I finally told Wade one day, and he told Dale Inman that I wanted to be on a pit crew. So. Uh, they all kept telling me he didn't think I wanted to be, and so finally he called me and said, uh, you still think you want to be on the pit crew? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, all right, we're going to put you on the pit crew. Put up or shut up. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to Daytona this year, and that was in 86. So uh, I had went to you know quite a few races before then, but yeah. Not, yeah. In a, not in a capacity of helping with a pit crew. But uh, So anyway, that's where it started was Daytona of 86, and I was the uh, – Catch can, uh, done the catch can for the for gassing, and I guess it just went from there. So you are the definition of what it means to be a weekend warrior, basically. Uh, that's pretty much it. Yes, it was. Uh, it was just my hobby. Uh, I didn't. I don't fish. I don't hunt. I don't play golf. Uh, that was just my weekend hobby. Was going to the races, and uh, it's. Uh, I enjoyed it. Tell me about your business. I know that you have R and H motor lines, right. and it's been in your it's been in your family for a long time. It has. Uh, my father and I started it in uh, 1969. Wow, uh, we've been been 52 years now. Uh, then, as my two younger brothers uh, finished school, they came into the company. So, uh, of course, my my parents were passed passed on now, and but two brothers and myself, we. Uh, we own a, it's a truck and trigger leasing company. We lease out mostly triggers. We have about twenty, about twenty five hundred pieces of equipment. Wow! And uh, so it's uh, it's been good to us. We've uh, we've worked hard at it. We put in a lot of hours, but it's it's you know it's been good to all of us. 
1986 is your first year actually helping out on the pit crew. And not only are you on the pit crew, you're actually going over the wall. Yes. How much practice did you have before then? Not not much. Uh, we've we've went up to uh, level cross to the to the shops and we practiced some, but it was pretty well just kind of learn as you go, I guess, uh, <laughs> on the on the job training. Yeah, so. yeah. And that was the first year that Petty Enterprises opened back up. It was. It? Yeah, yes. yeah. What was that dynamic like for it to be back up and running? It was pretty awesome. Uh, I mean, you know, it. I'll have to say in in '86, uh, you got a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, going to the races, anywhere you stop to go in to eat, anywhere you went out to eat, it's uh, you know, it was Richard Petty. So um, we were wearing STP uniforms. So it was, it was pretty awesome. And then you get it, people coming up to you in the pits asking you if you can get Richard Petty's autograph. And oh, all. yeah. yeah I can't imagine somebody doing it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, and you've got your name on your shirt, so everybody comes up, hey, Robert. And, you know, you're trying to figure out, do I know them or do they yeah, know me? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you don't want to be rude to anybody because, you know, you don't, you don't know whether they're a, a fan or whether they're the president of STPs. <laughs> So you've got to be you got to be nice. So you go to Daytona that first year and Richard Petty comes in pretty hot because that's before pit road speeds. How nervous were you that first stop? Oh, probably so nervous I probably couldn't have told you my name if somebody <laughs> asked me. It, yeah. Yeah. It, it was it, it was a learning experience. How long did it take you to get comfortable? in that role I don't think more than just just a few races I mean it's you're always I guess I don't guess you ever got over being a little keyed up uh, at every pit stop you, you kind of you kind of I guess your adrenaline's flowing and, and you're you're always pretty well keyed up at, at the time but it, you know it it got to where it was, it was just kind of second nature. I mean, you just knew what you had to do. Now, were you doing that full? I mean, were you on the road for every race? Every race, yes. Yeah. I went to, I went to, I went to every every one of them. I mean, I decided when uh, some some of the weekend crew, some of the weekend crew didn't, but but I decided when I committed to it that if I was going to do it. Um, I was going to go to every one of them. So what was your schedule like? I mean, because you're flying cross-country and going to Riverside at that time, and you're going to all the races, but at the same time, you're also running a fairly substantial business. How, how difficult was it to manage all that? Not, not too bad, um, because, you know... If I wasn't in the office, my brother was. So as long as one of us was pretty well there to to, to do it, and and I was always back by Monday morning, uh, unless we had a rain out and had to stay over somewhere. Uh, I would usually, of course, the tracks closer by, we drove to them. Uh, the weekend, the the race day crew, of course, would go on, you know, on Wednesday, Thursday, whenever they had to be there. Then uh, we would all leave level cross in a van. 
morning of the race, uh, anywhere from 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock on, get to the track. The tracks that we flew to, anything, anywhere that was any distance, we flew to them on Sunday morning. Most of the time, I would help, I would come back on the truck, on the transporter, because of, I guess, my experience of driving. So uh, I would help uh, their driver bring the transporter back. Okay. So a lot of times from the tracks far off, uh, you know, Michigan, Pocono, uh, Talladega, those tracks, I probably I wouldn't get back, you know, to level cross till four or five, six o'clock on Monday morning, and of course I would just head on back to the office and be at the office. So, so you would go straight to the office most of the time, yes. Wow. Don't know how productive I was. <laughs> but that was there. So, so you you kind of touched on it before we started recording, but your first job in racing is what a lot of people would consider to be a dream job you know you're working with Richard Petty what was it like working with him and getting to know him a little bit well I mean Richard was always you know great to be around I mean uh, he uh, he was he always treated everybody fair and he uh, he would treat the fans I think probably as probably as, as good to the fans as, as probably any of them as far as signing autographs or taking time with them and of course that's probably what got him where he was at too so you know the fans is what with one of the fans you wouldn't he wouldn't be there none of them would now be honest how big a distraction were fans at times um yeah, they could. They could but, you know, it's just that was just that was just part of it. Okay, it just um, it just kind of went with the territory. So you served as the gas, the catch can man, right. 86, 87, 88, 88, um, 88 was got off to a pretty exciting start with the Daytona 500. Uh, what do you remember about that day? Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty scary. I really didn't know what was what was um, you know going to be the outcome of that. So, could you see it from where you were? Uh, just not real good. No, okay. No. And the thing the thing about that wreck in the the month earlier they had went to Daytona and tested, and so uh, I flew down there just to see what a test station was like and uh and richard took me uh, about four laps in the car did he really we we, we averaged about 100 i think about 186 188 <laughs> mile an hour lap and i was just sitting in the right hand floorboard with holding on to a roll bar and the yeah. window post yeah. and uh, yeah and and i'm thinking after that wreck i'm thinking man if that had happened when <laughs> i was just sitting in the front on the floorboard yeah yeah and, That'd have been all of them been for me. But. Now, did you have a helmet or anything? No, no helmet. No, <laughs> anything, so, uh, yeah, that would have been yeah. something. I bet NASCAR I, the officials weren't real keen on him taking me out, but he told them, "said No, I'm gonna take him. I'm gonna take him a few laps." So. Hey, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is yeah. permission. That's Dale my Eman motto said, in life. Dale Eman said I was crazy, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you speak of Dale Eman. What was your relationship with him like? Well, Dale, Dale and I were, we were good friends. We, we still are. I still talk to Dale a lot. And my wife and Dale's wife, Mary, they're real good friends. They, 
they talk almost every week. So yeah, I yeah. I always always really like Dale. 1989, you become the gas man. How did that happen? How did that work out? I, I can't exactly remember why the, uh, the gas man we had <clears throat> wasn't going to be doing it anymore. But uh, Dale just asked me that I think I could, could I handle it. And I said, uh, I think I can. Apparently I couldn't, but... Uh, <laughs> Or anyway, it didn't work out well. But uh, that first race, I was a whole lot more nervous than I was the first race in '86. Were you really? Oh yeah. yes, because uh, I guess the gas man, gas man, the tire changers are pretty important jobs. So yeah, I knew there wasn't much room for error there. So so Atlanta that year, I think was about the fourth race of the season, maybe fourth, fifth, somewhere there. Something like that. Yeah, he comes in. What do you remember about everything that happened that day? Well, I think we were actually running fairly well. I think we were running in the top five, maybe. Um, it had a pretty decent day. We were, you know, maybe 60, 70 laps from the end of the race. It may have even been going to be our, I'm not sure whether that had been our final stop or not. But anyway, um, he made a green flag stop and... Uh, I can't remember. It seemed like he thought he had a vibration or something, so he decided to make a green flag stop. Uh, and and he came down the pit road, you know, pretty hot. Uh, we didn't have the pit road speed limits then, and and um, he, he, maybe he run by me just to. I just had to take a step or two backwards, and uh, which you know it really wasn't anything unusual, and it. Um, but just um, a lot of things didn't go right. Uh, I didn't have the can quite squared up on the side of the car. It sprayed some gas out on me, and um, it, um, but what it was was a header. The something was wrong with the engine, and it and it backfired, and it blew a ball of fire out the the header pipes. And of course, the pipes at that time were run out the driver's side on the driver's side of the car, so they were they were just right, you know, beside yeah. on me, just a foot from me. So. Just all the r- wrong circumstances come together at the right time. So, and uh, it just it just went up in a went up in a ball of fire. And um, I remember thinking I've got to get rid of this can of gas uh, on my head on my shoulder. So I I threw it out on the pit road to try to get it away from the fire, away from where I was yeah. at, yeah, and uh, away from the rest of the crew, car, and everything, and. And um, and luckily the can dis- didn't it didn't catch on fire, it didn't explode or anything. But uh, we had a we had a fairly significant fire there on yeah. the side of the car, pit road, and all. Were you conscious through the whole thing? I mean, do you remember yeah, the whole thing? I do. Uh, I just remember trying to get out of the out of the fireball, and I got. I got back over the wall while I was on the ground. I got up, and uh, I guess uh, what they teach you in school, stop, drop, and roll. I didn't remember that because I was just running trying to get away yeah, from the yeah, fire, yeah, but uh, yeah. trying to get the uniform off of me. And, uh, of course, it seemed like it lasted forever, but it, it was it was some you know some video and pictures all been taken. It was, you know, it, 
from the time the fire erupted till they got it out was wasn't been like 17, 18, 19 seconds or something, but it uh, but it was it seemed like a long time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was conscious. Um, I really didn't realize how how bad I was burned. Um, uh, the medical personnel was kind of on top of me. All was you know in a hurry, and uh, I know the doctor out of the trauma center, the infield care center was there and uh, they had me on a stretcher and as they were rolling me toward the infield care center I, I remember some of the paramedics or someone asking the, that doctor said uh, are we going to be taking him to the hospital in, in Atlanta and he said we're going to yeah, take him to Georgia Baptist and get him stabilized and we're going to be flying him to Humana Burn Center and I'm thinking to myself I'm thinking Man, I hurt that bad. I mean, I, I just <laughs> yeah, the yeah. feeling hadn't come back yet. I, right. I did not realize at, at that time how how bad I was. I was sure shock would be involved. It too. was. Yeah, well, the yeah. time they got me in the infield care center, and 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 I remember Dale Emmons told me that that he asked the doctor in there was I was I dying? Dale thought I was dying in the yeah. in the infield care center because I was in, in shock. Because but they they had given me so much to knock me out then. Uh, I don't. From that point on, I don't remember very much about it, uh, not not much at all, because uh, I remember they flew me from there to Georgia Baptist, got me stabilized. Georgia Baptist in uh, Atlanta? In Atlanta, Georgia okay. Baptist yeah. Hospital yeah. in Atlanta, and, and got me stabilized, and then they flew me from there to Humana Burn Center in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, it's probably 150, 60 miles away, and uh, to the burn center there. And, uh, Luckily, I guess if it was anything lucky about it, that was supposed to be one of the one of the top two or three burn centers in the nation. So uh, I was fortunate in that aspect that you know I was at a good good place. Stayed there 33 days um, and had several surgeries. I was had burns second, third degree, mostly third on about 38 percent of my body. So. I had uh, had a lot of surgeries. So where was it located? Basically, mostly uh, I had some on my neck, my arms, chest, uh, some on my, on my stomach. Most all my burns were on my legs, my waist okay. down. All right. So um, I had, like I said, maybe three or four surgeries for skin grafts. Um, now you were talking earlier. You did have a fire suit on at that time. I did because that was kind of out of the ordinary it even was. then. Uh, yeah, I don't even. I almost think that we may have been the only team that was using a fire suit. We had used it the year before, and um, and I don't know. They we we just sent them. I think to a regular cleaners to be cleaned, and yeah. you know it was no. No fault of anybody's. The, I mean, nobody wore them. Nobody knew, you know. I guess the procedure for cleaning them or treating them, and yeah. And uh, but the fire got the 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 fire got on the inside of my suit. My the, my suit was it. You would you would think that the suit would have been burnt off on me, but it wasn't. It was charred. I mean, it melted the. The my headset cord that came down across my chest it melted it completely to my uniform and all, but it didn't it didn't disintegrate the uniform. It was still intact, but it, the fire was on the inside of it too, so it was wow. it was charred on the inside and out. But 
And, and you know, and there again, I don't know. I'm I'm sure it still provided some protection. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. You know, I may have been burned a lot worse if I had not had it on. Uh, yeah. So that's just something I don't know. But. So your wife's name is Jeannie. That's correct. And she spells her name with two N's. My wife spells her name with one N. Okay. Um, what was her reaction? Did I would assume that she came down as she did, yeah, uh, as soon as possible. She did. Uh, I think she was actually at her parents' house, and um, and was coming back to our house, and she heard it on the radio, and so oh. she was listening on the radio, and so she went. I think she went straight to my parents' house, which was almost next door, and and. Uh, they said they didn't think it was me, and Jeannie said, "Yeah, they, it was it was me that got burned." And, uh, yeah, and it wasn't just a little bit that the uh, the doctor from the Enfield Care Center called, and and Dale Dale called Dale Inman, he called and uh, and told them, and so um, they they pretty well just got packed and headed headed to Augusta. Yeah, uh, my daddy used to tell her that there was two miracles that day that. Uh, he uh, that that I survived the fire, and he told her she had 15 minutes to pack to be gone for 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it, so anyway, she uh, she got she got packed. I think there was a neighbor or two helping her throw stuff in the suitcase. She, I think she got to Augusta and didn't have half what she wanted. But anyway, yeah, uh, we made it. They had a uh, I think um, some of. Uh, Petty's people was already in Augusta, and they had, uh, you know, accommodations already set up for them. Uh, the, the hotel, Crossing Hospital, uh, Pontiac dealership, which of course Richard was driving a Pontiac at the time. Pontiac dealership in Augusta. I had him a car there already. No kidding! Yeah, wow. Give him a had him a furnished him a car the whole time they were there. So um, they uh, they they drove down. Uh, there was one or two of them, Felix Sabatis. A team or two uh, offered to send a plane to Ashbar to get them, but yeah. I think they decided by the time they, they flew, waited, flew yeah, from Atlanta yeah, up yeah, here yeah, and yeah. back to Augusta and all that, you know, it's only a four-hour drive, so they could drive down just as fast. But but you know, there was uh, there was quite a few of the other teams offered to, yeah. offered assistance. So you're in the hospital in Augusta. That's correct. And you're dealing with the surgeries and and recuperating and all that. What was your mindset during all that time? Were you sedated? Were you were you cognizant of what was going on, or or how was your how was that month in the hospital? What was it like for you? Well, I was I was fairly aware of everything that was going on. Um, I mean, it was um, every every day. You know, you went to they put you in whirlpools to get get dead skin off and of course the, the, all your grafts were stapled on and then and then you know you're taking they're taking the staples out and they're doing more grafts so it's it's uh, they're, they're pretty well on you all the time uh, so but I, I remember I pretty well remember I, mean, I remember everything pretty well I was on a lot of morphine uh, yeah. but I still I still pretty well knew what was going on so when you got out of the hospital, did you come back home, or did you go to a rehab facility here? I came or? home. They uh, they they took uh, my wife, and I had had the dressings and all changed every day. They they 
give her a, kind of a crash course yeah, in, uh, yeah. in in dressings, and they wanted to know what I was coming home to, the facilities, you know, how sterile. Uh, sheets had to be changed every day. You know, I couldn't have really a lot of company around yeah. close to me because of infection. Yeah. Um, I had to make, um, you know, over the next year, I had to make s- several trips back to Augusta, and uh, and then they lined it up with the local hospital here for me to go there to to keep check on on all the burns to make sure there's no infection and all. So uh, it, it took, the next year was, you know, there's a lot of hospital visits, uh, a lot of rehab, a lot of a lot of changing bandages. But uh, yeah. I was, uh, I think, I mean, I was able. I mean, I was you know, back in the office after a few weeks. I'd, I'd come back to the office, but um, and and I think the first race maybe back was not at not doing anything on the crew, but. I went back to the race. I think the fall race at Charlotte maybe was the first time I was back at the track. So, now did you go to every race from there on out, or did was that just a visit? That was just a visit. Okay. I went to yeah. I went to a few of the closer by races just yeah. just to be going, yeah. and then uh, starting in the ninety uh, the nineteen ninety season, then I started back full time going all of them. Being involved in racing obviously cost you pretty dearly was there ever a point in that year or so where you said you know what (laughs) i'm just a weekend guy i I don't need to be messing with this was there ever a point where you were at least considering walking away and not doing it anymore no i don't think so or was your wife considering it for you (laughs) she may have been considering it i don't know know how much she voiced her opinion but uh No, I don't think so. Uh, I really, really, I really didn't give it any thought that I wasn't going to go back in, in some capacity, do something. Yeah. You know, if they want to be back, if they will, had a had a spot for me. When nineteen ninety did roll back around, did you go to them, or did they come to you and say, "Are you ready?" Or did you go to them and say, "I am ready"? Well, I mean, we stayed in. Okay. Basically constant contact all the time i mean you know i was up there quite a bit and you know richard and dale were you know they had been to the house and you know down here and we were in contact all the time so it really wasn't like really wasn't like i'd just been gone and you know here i walk back in the door and say do you want me can i come back with you but uh, yeah I, i think it was pretty well pretty well just kind of a given that yeah, I'm, I'm going to be back if you know if I can. Now, when you did come back, what were you doing? I didn't go over the wall and get. Why? <laughs> <car, so>, uh, <laughs> <and, laughs> uh, it's um, I kept lap times, uh, clocked the car every lap, uh, kept lap times, figure fuel mileage, uh, you know, clocked the pit stops, and whether we kept record or whether we had done two two tire change, four tire, you know. Uh, that that I probably held the clipboard and the stopwatches and <laughs> stood on the stood on the stools. So. Was there ever a point where you maybe had I don't want to say PTSD or flashbacks or anything like that, but did you have to kind of talk yourself through some of those pit stops? 
maybe not maybe not the pit stop as much because I wasn't right there you know yeah over the wall uh, yeah there was a I had a it, it took a, it took a two or three years to get um, to get it to get past the fear of fire yeah uh, I mean we uh, you know I, I couldn't I didn't even like a fire in the fireplace or yeah. I was yeah. terrified of the gas logs uh, oh yeah yeah uh, we had fire extinguishers here at our business and our homes uh, you wasn't you weren't more than 20 feet from a fire extinguisher anywhere you were at. I mean, we, we all have been yeah. stalking the fire extinguisher company because <laughs> we put fire extinguishers everywhere. Uh, it, it made me a lot more conscious of that. Um, it, it took me a few years to get over it. Um, then I guess when I did, I made it an about face. Uh, uh, I had been involved with the fire department uh, in the uh, business end of it uh, for a few years. Uh, then I I, I actually just joined. I've been a volunteer fireman now for years, and, uh, and uh, I'll have to say I've not been in a lot of burning houses, but I have been in some uh, in training fires. And first one, I mean, my Whew. wife was terrified, and I was oh too. But I said, I said it's something I got to do. I've got to get, I've got to get past this mental block that I've got about fire. I said I've got to, yeah, I've got to go in, and, and I've got. I've got to get past it, and and it helped me. And I'm not, you know, I don't have that fear anymore. I mean, I'm I'm really safety conscious about fire, uh, about you know anything that that could be harmful to anybody. But um, you know, I, I see I see a lot of dan- dangers and and things that I didn't used to see. But after your fire, after your accident, pit crews got a lot more conscious of that happening because I mean you and I both know that you can find pictures from the 1950s and 60s of drivers in t-shirts and and pit crew members in in crew shirts and uniforms and stuff did anybody come to you and talk to you about the safety stuff after that or did you make a point to go talk to people or bang that drum in any way no, not really. Um, I, I think it. I think it all just kind of took care of itself. I think as soon as uh, as soon as we had that fire, I think it opened a lot of eyes, and, um, and I think um, uh, I think that that about all the teams immediately started uh, ordering fire suits for well, Jerry their, Punch started wearing a fire suit yeah right yeah. and so he was right in our he was right in our pits they were filming our pit stop actually so yeah, uh, um, yeah the the, uh, the, the all, all of them started wearing fire suits I think that uh, maybe Simpson I think was the, the maybe the main one at that time that provided that and I think they were just flooded with orders maybe um, but they um I, th- I think it pretty well took care of itself. I don't want to over-dramatize the point, but is that your legacy? Is that your contribution to the sport? Well, I've never really thought about it that way, but uh, uh, I guess it, I guess you could say that. I mean, it's uh, hopefully, 
hopefully it's maybe I know it's helped in the safety standpoint of the sport and and you know it's probably hopefully helped someone else from going through what I went through I mean you know it's yeah. one of the things you don't know because I mean they did make they did make a lot of changes uh, yeah. I think it was right after that that they they run the exhaust out the right side of the car to get it away from the away from the side where the gas where you're fueling and uh, and and the gas the gas both people the gas had to wear you know and then and then it wasn't but just very long after that that anybody that went over the wall had to wear a fire suit and so um, I guess it's kind of like you know old saying you Somebody has to get killed at an intersection before they put a stoplight up. It's kind of <laughs> yeah. it's kind of yeah. like that, you know. It just it, I think it finally opened a lot of eyes, you know, as to what could happen. You start back on the pit crew in, in nineteen ninety, and you go through ninety one, late nineteen ninety one. Richard announces his retirement tour the next year. Mm-hmm. What was nineteen ninety two like in the fan appreciation tour? Well, it was, um, I guess. A whirlwind, kind of. It was, uh, you know, every, everywhere you went, it was, uh, you know, a big fanfare. I mean, it was, you know, everybody wanted to, everybody wanted to see him, and of course, um, you know, the media focused on him a lot because it was his last year, and you know, Richard had won a lot of races and championships, and so it was. Uh, we, we, I guess you'd have to say, we got a lot of attention. How long did you? stick around I, I know that you were still there in 94 95 yes 90 I think uh, went through 98 98 yes okay yeah, 98 now were you there when Bobby won yes yeah. were you really what was that like well I'll have to say I never went to Victory Lane with Richard but it was yeah. uh, it, it was it was it was, uh, it was it was exciting it was good it was, um, yeah, I stayed through 98. It was, um, and it wasn't any particular reason then. It was just, I guess, I'd gotten older and just, um, I think I had the first grandchild on the way. So, yeah. you know, it's just, it just circumstances. And, of course, we got a lot busier in our business. And so um, it, it was, um, I just felt like, felt like maybe it was time. Yeah. Uh, just uh, they kept Dale kept telling me you, you still go to all any races you want to if you want to just go to some of them or part of them but you know there again I just felt like if I didn't want to be there and just be in the way if I wasn't going to be there and serve a purpose I didn't yeah. want to be there and be in the way because there's enough people in the way as it is so yeah. <laughs> without, without me adding yeah. to it but, yeah. uh, and, I, and I went to several races I went to several races since then with uh, uh, I'd, I'd go up and you know, go with Richard and Dale to Martinsville and some yeah. of the closer yeah. races around. I've been went to several. I haven't been in a few years, but uh, it's uh, racing's changed a lot. I gotta say, what happened to you has certainly not impacted your love for the sport or for Richard Petty. This is the most awesome collection of Richard Petty stuff I believe I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I had an inside track. I could, <laughs> I could get some of it. So I've got a few things that's pretty neat. I've got the uh, I've got the set of spark plugs that he run in Atlanta. I put 
is is Richard's waist ride. So I, I made that stand for him. And I got a lot of neat items, I think, that's uh, kind of unique. So When you come in here, do you feel a sense of ownership in it? Because, you know, a lot of people have Richard Petty collections, but not everybody has the connection to it that you yeah. did. What do you, what do you think of when you come in this room? Well, it, it brings back, you know, it brings back memories. Uh, I've got, I've still got every uniform I had, every golf shirt I had, everything. Uh, uh, my, my wife told me before, she said, you probably could sell some of that. I said, well, I don't really want to. I don't know why. I'm just attached to it, and I want to keep it. Don't wear it, but I won't keep it. So. Well, when you start listening to her, give me a call. <laughs> okay. I will. All right. I want to be your first call. Steve, this segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Show Place. This is how I first met Robert Calicut. Do tell. Do tell. <laughs> My very first Winston Cup race ever was at Atlanta in the spring of 1990. By gosh, my ex-wife and I, we sponsored a lap during the event. And so did Sandy Eastep and my best friend Joe, which got us all pre-race pit passes. And I was so, Steve, I was so excited. (laughs) (laughs) I got my 1989 Winston Cup yearbook all bookmarked where I wanted all the drivers to sign. And, And of course, the weekend wasn't going to be complete unless I got Richard Petty's autograph. Well, we see him at a distance, but we can't get close enough for an autograph. So we're wandering around down on pit road and we stop at Richard's pit stall and we strike up a conversation with this lady and we tell her our predicament and she offers to take a couple of things into the garage for Richard to sign. And it turns out that it was Jeannie Calicut, Robert's wife. And then we made the connection because this was one year to the weekend after Robert had been injured in that fire. That weekend, Robert gave me his business card. We kept in touch, or maybe I just bugged the living crap out of him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm voting for the latter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you say that you're speaking from experience, because you wouldn't know anything about me bugging the crap out of anybody, (laughs) would you? Uh, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> well, the following year, I did my very first NASCAR story ever on Robert for a publication called Dixie Racing News. And that led to me going to work for that magazine full time. The next year in 1992, I'm going to ride that story as long as I can. And I file a piece on Robert to Winston Cup scene, baby. <laughs> <laughs> And it got published in October, 1992 and two very eventful years later, I go to work for Winston cup scene full time. Now, 30 years later, I'm still on the Robert Calicut story for the scene vault podcast. And you had better believe that people will be hearing from Robert on the dirty Mo show (laughs) as well. Now here's a cool tidbit. My first story in Winston cup scene was on Petty Enterprises crew member, Robert Calicut. And your first story in Grand National scene 
was on Petty Enterprises crew member Horst Fisher. Oh, yeah. I remember Horst. Everybody called him Kraut because <laughs> he was a German, but he was a fascinating story. You know, he was a member of the Hitler Youth. He had no choice. He had yeah. to join the Hitler Youth, but he got through all of that and somehow found his way south and into stock car racing. What a character. With all that being said, I did not know that Robert first started going to races with Dick May. And Steve, that is a name that is a blast from the past, if ever there was one that we've discussed here on the podcast. Oh, man, you talk about characters. Dick May was really a character. He was in charge of slapping STP decals on anything that he could get his hands on at the track and away from the track. (laughs) Oh, away from the track. He recruited a bunch of us guys in the media and gave us those STP decals. Now, the explanation was the white decal with STP on it was for the inside. The silver decal was used as a 200-mile-an-hour decal to go on cars and on airplanes. We had those decals in our pockets. And as we came down the jetway and walked into the plane, we'd slap an STP decal on the outside of that airplane right at the door. You could see five or six of them there (laughs) before the plane ever took off. And the thing about it was the flight attendants loved the fact that we had those decals. I can't tell you how many times I've not heard a free drink for a decal. Now, ask me if I took them up on it. (laughs) Steve, I don't even need to ask that question. (laughs) I don't need to ask that question at all. (laughs) Those STP decals are at airports all across the country. Slapping a STP decal on an airplane today, I think the airplane folks would have a little bit less of a sense of humor about it today. Uh, I think you're exactly right. I wouldn't even try today. Airports <laughs> and their security got me scared to death, man. I am sure that there was some kind of federal regulation about that. I'm sitting here talking to a fugitive. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's some kind of reward out for you. No, no. Statute of limitations is one. <laughs> of course, Dick was a longtime independent driver. And legend holds that Dick May drove five different cars in the spring race in 1975 racing reference shows that Dick qualified 25th for that event, but quit after completing just 43 of 500 laps. The reason out for that race for Dick may is quit. So that's one car, but what were the other four? And all of a sudden I am down the rabbit hole trying to figure this thing out. Greg Fielden's 40 years of stock car racing didn't have anything. I couldn't find anything on the internet. I dug into my scene vault archive and looked through every issue beginning in 1995 for a story that I did on Dick early in my career there at scene. And after an hour or so thumbing through all these newspapers and checking out the table of contents for every issue, I finally came across it in the February 15th, 1996 issue. The one covering that year's Bush clash at Daytona. And Steve, I got to say, finding that doggone story would have been so much easier if all these papers had been digitized and preserved and searchable. All right, wait a second. (laughs) Did I say that out loud? (laughs) Let's not go there. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) 
<laughs> there was no mention of Dick driving five cars in one race in that story, but it did kind of tell who Dick was as a person. Dick owned a trucking company, Tricky's Trailers, within walking distance of Charlotte Motor Speedway. And every morning at O'Dark 30, a group of NASCAR folks would show up to the shop, including officials Elmo Langley and Chuck Romeo and Jimmy Cox and people like Harry Hyde and Bob Latford and Jack Flowers and Ken Schrader and whoever else decided to show up. Well, then they would move next door to the Apollo restaurant. There was actually a table reserved for Dick at that restaurant for the mayor of Harrisburg. (laughs) (laughs) Been there several times. Nobody could spin a story like Dick May. He was just hilarious. Uh, This is what Whit King and Whit was a former crew member in the sport. This is what Whit had to say about Dick. He's not one of the nicest guys in the garage. As far as I'm concerned, he's the nicest guy in the garage. He would do without a lot of things himself just to help somebody else out. He's just the kind that would give up anything it took to help somebody else. He's Mr. Nice Guy. My story didn't have anything about the five cars. And I still didn't give up. (laughs) I did a search of all the issues that I personally scanned from the very beginning in 1977, midway through the 1982 issue, I've, I've scanned all those myself, every single page, of every issue. And Steve, you did a story on Dick in 1981, but your story didn't mention him driving five cars in a single race either. So don't be getting uppity about me not having my story. <laughs> but your story on Dick had this, and I thought it was great. Dick said, listen. I'm no mechanic. Oh, I can change a wheel or help drop in an engine, but I am not like Bobby Allison or Richard Petty. They'll take a car out and come back asking for a 1200 pound spring or shocks or something. Me, I'll tell you if the car is pushing, I'll hit the wall in front. (laughs) If it's loose, I'll hit in the back. When I get out of a car, I'm likely to say, fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Steve, is that where that came from? As long as I have ever been in this sport, I've heard that being the definition of loose or tight. Is Dick the originator of that? I don't know if he's the originator, but I tell you this, he has the most apt description of it by saying when the car is tight one way, you know, uh, the front end will go into the wall and if the car is loose, the back end will go into the wall. That's exactly what could happen. When he mentioned that, I finally understood what they were talking about, the difference between, you know, tight and loose. Dick continued in your story. One guy asked me once what the water and oil temperatures were in the car after I'd made a run. I wasn't sure what he was talking about. (laughs) He, He said, don't you look at the gauges? And I said, which gauges are you talking about? He said, the ones in the car. <laughs> and I said, well, they sure are nice. And the dashboard is pretty too. <laughs> <laughs> Dick May was my kind of driver. <laughs> I, asked him, I asked him one time about that same situation. I said, Dick, don't you kind of wonder why you don't have a speedometer in your car? He said, no, I'm glad we don't. It would scare me to death to take a look at how fast I was going. <laughs> I have checked with a lot of people. And none of them seemed to know which five cars Dick drove that day other than his own. Well, you know me, 
I'm going to keep digging until I figure that out. I think you should go for it, Rick. This may be just an urban legend, though. We've said it 10 million times here on the show. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. (laughs) (laughs) Now, back to Robert Calicut. (laughs) Oh, we're talking about Robert? Okay, yeah, okay, good. Robert started working for Petty Enterprises in 1986, the very same time as the team is opening its doors back up. And he serves as a catch can man during pit stops. And a lot of weekends, he is burning the candle at both ends between traveling to the races and working at the trucking rental company that he owns in Ashbra, R&H Motor Lines. He said a lot of times he would get on the red eye, land back in North Carolina, and head straight for the shop to go to work at the trucking company. That's hardcore. That is hardcore. But if you wanted to be in racing, as a volunteer or just somebody helping and going to all the races, that's how you had to do it. You had your own business to tend to, and you had your racing business to tend to, and that takes up a lot of time. I can guarantee you there wasn't a lot of glitz and glamour on that red eye coming back from a race and trying to get through the Monday morning workday. There wasn't a whole lot of stardom in that, I can tell you. I can assure you, you did not get a good night's sleep on a red eye. Most fans remember the 1988 Daytona 500 for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was the one-two finish between Bobby and Davey Allison. And second, Richard's really bad crash coming off turn four where he flipped so many times. Yeah, it looked like a top. I mean, spinning like a top scared me to death. Here's a story about that day that folks wouldn't have any way of knowing until now, or Robert had flown down to test just to see what all was going on. Of course, it's a trip to Daytona in January. So yeah, he he had a little bit of a reason to go down there. But while he is down there, Richard takes him out on the track for a few laps in the race car at speeds between 186 and 188 miles an hour. (laughs) There's no seat. There are no belts. Robert doesn't have on a helmet. And he is just hanging on for dear life in the car that Richard eventually wrecked during the race. Just imagine what went through Robert's mind when he saw that wreck unfold and what was left of the car afterward. I tell you what, if I'd been in that car with Richard, I don't think I'd be alive when he came back. You know why? He was scared the life out of me. That's for sure. I can't believe Robert did. Just imagine what it would have been like to be riding around Daytona in Richard Petty's race car with Richard Petty driving. That is a dream scenario. To me, it wouldn't have gotten any better than that. You and I are just going to have to agree to disagree on that one. (laughs) I I would ride around a racetrack with Richard Petty today. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you would. And him, what, 84 years old. Yeah. Now, to me, that's a dream scenario. And I did want to ask you this. You and I have got to experience a lot of things that would be dream scenarios for most race fans over the course of our careers. Of the folks who had either passed away or retired by the time you came along, who would have been your dream interview in the sport? Curtis Turner. He was a Virginian, just like me. When I got into the sport, I picked up on his reputation of being no-nonsense, lead-put driver. 
He just showed a car, no mercy. That's the way I was told about it. And then I learned more about him, like what a character he was and how he made and lost fortunes in the logging business and, and got his hands on the Charlotte Motor Speedway and ran afoul of Bill France when he approached the Teamsters to try to get them to unionize the drivers, things of that sort. So I would have loved to sit down with him and say, you got to tell me the story. I want to know everything because you, Curtis, are truly a fascinating character. I'm going to say this and please know that I am not trying to blow smoke up your skirt. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've long since passed that stage, <laughs> but I interviewed Dell Earnhardt several times in my career, one or two times, one-on-one, just me and him. But I will say that I would like to have had the relationship with him that you did. You got to know the personal side to Dell Earnhardt. And by the time I came into the sport, he was a seven-time champion and he was kind of on the pedestal and he had a close circle of associates around him as a protective shell. And I was never able to get past that. You were, you have stories about him that few, if any other motorsports journalists ever had. I just think that it would have been neat to get to know that side of such an icon of the sport. Well, I was very lucky, Rick. I got to know him very early in his career when he didn't have all this business pressing on him and he didn't have everybody tugging at him and he didn't have the status of being a champion. So we got to know each other pretty well before he took off in his career. That relationship just stuck. Rick was very fortunate for me that we were able to get along so well for so many years. 1989, Robert moves a few steps to the left around the back of the car and he started serving as the gas man for Petty Enterprises. And Atlanta is just the third race of the season. Richard actually leads nine laps during a series of green flag stops earlier in the race. And ABC is covering Richard's stop when he comes into the pits on lap 257. Jerry Punch is calling the stop, and then all of a sudden, he isn't. The camera couldn't possibly have had a better view of what went down. Robert said that he was conscious through the whole time, and he did have the presence of mind to throw the gas can away from the fire. And you can see it in the photos several feet away. He, he pitched that thing a pretty good distance from the time that the fire started until it was extinguished was maybe 17, 18, 19 seconds. According to him, 19 seconds is not that long in the grand scheme of things. But when you're going through something like that, 19 seconds, just saying it sends chills down my spine. I mean, yeah, I can't seconds even imagine anything worse. Oh man. It's an eternity when in a situation like that. Robert said that he remembers the paramedics on site talking about taking him to the hospital and then to the burn center. And he's wondering to himself, am I really hurt that bad? Because at that time, I'm sure there was shock involved and because of the adrenaline, he wasn't feeling everything that was going on. He goes to the infield care center. Then they airlift him to Georgia Baptist in Atlanta and then to Humana Burn Center in Augusta, Georgia, where he stayed for the next 33 days. He had second and third degree burns that covered 38% of his body, mostly from his waist down. He was initially listed in critical condition. And fortunately, he was wearing a fire suit, which he still has in a display case there in his shop. And you can see where it's been blackened by fire. And you can actually see where the cord of his radio headset 
actually melted onto mm. the suit. Well, it's a darn good thing Robert had a fire suit on because they were not prevalent in NASCAR for many, many years. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if teams didn't have uniforms to give to the crewmen, they were out there in jeans and T-shirts doing yeah. their job. But thankfully, you know, that doesn't exist today. Well, by this time, 1989, there were some teams that were wearing fire suits on pit road while gassing the car, but not everybody was. Well, afterwards, everybody did. Everybody did. And so I think that is Robert Calicut's legacy. But Steve, flames got inside the suit. And again, I just can't even begin to imagine. So Robert is headed to the burn center in Augusta. And his wife, Jeannie, is at home in Ashborough. And here's where racing becomes a family in times of crisis. When Jeannie got to the hospital, somebody had already set up a hotel room for her. The local Pontiac dealership provided her with a car while she was there. Felix Sabatis and a couple other people actually offered to fly Jeannie down to Georgia so she could be there. But by the time they would have flown back and forth, they could have driven, and that's what they did. They they drove down. After he got out of the hospital, his care was still pretty much a constant everyday concern. He had to make trips back to Augusta. At home, his wounds had to be monitored very closely to make sure that they didn't get infected. And Robert went back to the track for the first time at Charlotte that fall and then went back on the road full-time beginning in 1990 keeping Richard's lap times and figuring fuel mileage and clocking pit stops and keeping track of two and four tire changes. And Steve, he stayed with the team through 1998 and finally got to go to victory lane with the 43 and driver, Bobby Hamilton. Well, it took a while, but that had to be a great reward for Robert. No question. This is what I absolutely love about how Robert handled the situation. Everybody has concern about a fire, but it's not part of their everyday lives. But as you can imagine, the fear of fire became a very real thing to Robert, (laughs) (laughs) a fire in the fireplace. Nope, not having it. (laughs) And he said that he had fire extinguishers all over the place at home and at work. He said he wasn't ever more than a few feet away from a fire extinguisher. But this is what I truly admire about Robert Calicut. He refused to let that fear dominate his life. So Steve, he joined the local volunteer fire department. And as part of that, he had to take part in training fires where he and the rest of the company actually went into a structure to extinguish anything. Now, can you imagine what was going through his mind as he headed into those flames? I'm telling you, given what you just said about Robert, I can't imagine doing what Robert did in this case. If it had been me, I'm not too sure, Rick, that I would ever be able to work for a fire department and charge into a burning building again. Now, I can understand. No fireplaces. (laughs) I can understand. Fire extinguishers all over the house. But this is truly a remarkable experience here. I can't imagine what the flashbacks must have been, but he actually still serves in the fire department to this Mm -hmm. day. And I think that says a lot about who he is and his personality. And Steve, I do want to close out with this. I mentioned this during the interview, but he has one of the most amazing Richard Petty memorabilia collections I've ever seen. (laughs) I posted a picture of it 
on Twitter and said, I'm in Richard Petty heaven. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. And he told me while we were getting set up, he kind of laughed and said to his wife, Jeannie was going to have a yard sale someday. So I immediately sent her a message on Facebook to tell her to let me know first (laughs) (laughs) when that happens, because Ronnie Thomas has one of Richard's helmets in his collection. And I've pastored the living daylights out of him ever since we went up to Virginia for our interview. Listen, the Richard Petty helmet is just one item in Robert's collection. I mean, it is something else. So Jeannie, if you're listening to this, give me a call. (laughs) Steve, this segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. America's Racing Showplace, March 23rd, 1989 issue of Grand National Scene. There is an amazing photo on the cover of this issue, and it's of the accident involving yeah. Robert Calicut while he's fueling the car, and it, the flames are present, and it is just a chilling. It's one of the more memorable that Scene ever ran on the cover. Absolutely, and you're right. It's very chilling. It's just exactly the kind of thing you do not want to see at a racetrack richard petty started the motorcraft 500 at the track then known as atlanta international raceway in 24th position and richard actually took the lead on lap 118 during a cycle of green flag pit stops and he stayed out front for nine laps well lap 257 richard thinks that he's got a tire going down because of a vibration he comes on to pit road then the fire broke out Robert jumps back over the wall and it's just mass chaos. As you can imagine, a crew member from Melling racing, Bill Elliott's team actually put out the flames on Richard's car and then crew members from a bunch of other teams and emergency personnel put the flames out on Robert and Richard said after the race, I'm okay. I'm just worried about that boy. It's not funny, but Robert was 38 years old at at the time, (laughs) but Richard continued when the car caught fire, they could put me out. It blazed up by the door. I think the headers broke and it backfired. It got so hot that when the gas hit it, it exploded. Darrell Waltrip had won the Daytona 500 that year by stretching his fuel supply to the to the very last vapor (laughs) and here in Atlanta, he again, wasn't the strongest car in the field, but Jeff Bodine and Rick Wilson crashed in turn four to bring out the caution on lap three fourteen, and DW followed leader Dell Earnhardt down pit road. The next time around Daryl beat Dell out of the pits and went on to win by six tenths of a second. DW said, Thank God for the caution flag. I needed that last caution flag. When we got it, the crew did one heck of a job and we put on the best set of tires we had all day. We made a chassis adjustment and ran those last laps the fastest we had run all day. That's exactly what you need. But there was a little bit of a question about who actually won the race off pit road. Dale was pitted at the start finish line while DW was well down pit road near the exit. And so when they left the pits, Dale had a full head of steam and there was no pit road speed at this time. 
and DW was basically still peeling out of his stall when they crossed the pit exit stripe. And Dell said, I did win that race out of the pits. I saw the line in front of Daryl's car. I think I got there first. I was a little disappointed with the call. I think we got beat on horsepower at the end. Daryl's car was better on new tires. He beat us out of the pits and he had the open track. I do remember that from the press box, it looked to be mighty, mighty close. Nobody really spoke up and said, well, Dale won that. No, Dale won that. There wasn't any kind of debate about that because we just really didn't know. And we had to rely on NASCAR's call. And NASCAR said, well, it was Dale. Well, it was almost one of those instant replay deals that you see in baseball, a bang-bang play at first base or a wide receiver in football catching the ball right at the sideline. and Does he get yeah. both feet down or whatever? It was that kind of deal, and you basically had to rely on whatever equipment NASCAR had at the end of pit road at that time. And, yeah, it was close. It would be a different story today. They would have the proof one way or the other. Mike Alexander replaced Bobby Allison with the Stavola brothers after Bobby was so severely injured in that horrible crash in 1988 at Pocono. But then Mike was injured during the off season while running the snowball derby. And after Mike ran the Daytona 500 in 1989, he turned the car over to Dick trickle and Dick finished third in this race after leading three times for a total of 15 laps. So he was stout. Team co-owner Bill Stavola said, our deal with Trickle is and always will be a race-by-race situation, and everyone knows that. Alexander came to our side last year when Bobby Allison was injured. We're still standing behind Mike until he's ready to get back into the race car. And Dick added, there's no telling what will happen after this. Who knows how long Mike will be out of the car. The whole thing I'm doing is just rolling the dice and seeing what happens. And Dick did wind up staying in the car the entire year. He had some really good runs that year with the Stavolas. He reeled off three straight top five finishes later that spring. He was fifth at Bristol, fourth at North Wilkesboro, and third at Martinsville, and then finished third again at Martinsville in the fall and fifth at Rockingham. And he did win the 1989 Rookie of the Year Championship. That is correct. But unfortunately, he was not able to stick with us to bowlers. Kyle Petty finished fourth in this race, one lap down in his first official start for Felix Sabatis. The team failed to qualify for the Daytona 500, the first race on the limited schedule that planned to run that year. The team rented a ride in the 500 for Kyle to drive, then skipped Rockingham and ran Atlanta. The plan at that point was to run 16 to 18 races And Kyle sounded a little like he wanted to do more. Kyle said, I can see why daddy doesn't retire because you just can't walk away from it. But that's exactly how Felix was going to make that team work. He decided to run a limited first season schedule in order to a get Kyle and the team used to being with one another and see how they did and b save money. There was a lot of attrition in this race with 16 cars falling out with some kind of engine trouble. And there was also a seven car accident at about the halfway point with another three cautions for three more accidents. Rusty Wallace won the race the week before at Rockingham. He started third here in Atlanta 
and led six times for a total of 130 laps more than any other driver, but he puked an engine (laughs) (laughs) after completing just 217 of the race's 328 laps. And he was credited with a 31st place finish. Rusty said, we ran perfect and the car handled great. We ran cool all day and our gas mixture was rich. We were fast, real fast. And unless they had a good set of tires coming, I don't see much way anybody could have caught us, but it was all for naught. We're parked and they're not. (laughs) That may be so, but 1989 was going to be a very good year for Rusty Wallace. Hey, this is Buckshot Jones. Hey, I'm Randy LaJoy. Hi, I'm Chris Hussey. Hi, folks. This is Jeff Hammond. I'm Ken Schrader. You're listening to The Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, this podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and a good group of people. And Steve, a little bit of announcement, a small, minor announcement. But I've got a new email address for our listeners for their questions and comments, rick at thescenevault.com. And also, we are in the process of setting one up for Steve. And that address, once it gets up and running, it's not live yet, so don't be sending those quite yet. But that address will be steve at thescenevault.com. So we got a new way for people to get in touch with us. I'm looking forward to it, Rick. I think. (laughs) (laughs) Send all your compliments to Rick at the scene Send all your complaints to Steve at the scene (laughs) Now, wait a minute. (laughs) Steve, this week, we do need to offer our thanks to people who make this podcast possible. Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Sound help is by Todd Phillips. Video production is by NASCAR man and music is provided by Joey Stepp and Frantic Radio. (laughs) That's a first. (laughs) Okay. All right.